Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk. We are on chapter 10 entitled Of the Faith of the Fathers. Them face of beauty haunting all the world, fair face of beauty all too fair to see. Where the lost stars adown the heavens are hurled, there, there alone for thee, may white peace be. Beauty, sad face of beauty, mystery, wonder. What are these dreams to foolish babbling men who cry with little noises neath the thunder of ages ground to sand to a little sand? Fiona Macalot. <clears throat> it was out in the country, far from home, far from my foster home on a dark Sunday night. The road wandered from our rambling log house up the stony bed of a creek past wheat and corn until we could hear dimly across the fields a rhythmic cadence of song, soft, thrilling, powerful, that swelled and died sorrowfully in our ears. I was a country school teacher then, fresh from the East and never had seen in Southern Negro revival. To be sure, we in Berkshire were not perhaps as stiff and formal as they in Suffolk of olden time, yet we were very quiet and subdued. And I know not what would have happened those clear Sabbath mornings had someone punctuated the sermon with a wild scream or interrupted the long prayer with a loud amen. And so most striking to me, as I approached the village and the little plain church perched aloft, was the air of intense excitement that possessed that mass of black folk. A sort of suppressed terror hung in the air and seemed to seize us. A Pythian madness. A demoniac possession that lent terrible reality to song and word. The black and massive form of the preacher swayed and quivered as the words crowded to his lips and flew out as flew out in singular eloquence. The people moaned and fluttered, and then the gaunt-cheeked brown woman beside me suddenly leaped straight into the air and shrieked like a lost soul, while round about came well and groan and outcry, in a scene of human passion such as I had never conceived before. Those who have not thus witnessed the frenzy of a Negro revival in the untouched backwoods of the South can but dimly realize the religious feeling of the slave. As described, such scenes appear grotesque and funny, but as seen, they are awful. Three things characterize this religion of the slave, the preacher, the music, and the frenzy. The preacher is the most unique personality developed by the Negro on American soil. A leader, a politician, an orator, a, quote, boss, end quote, an intriguer, an idealist. All these he is, and ever, too, the center of a group of men, now 20, now 1,000 in number. The combination of a certain adroitness with deep-seated earnestness, of tact with consummate ability, gave him his preeminence and helps him maintain it. The type, of course, varies according to time and place, from the West Indies in the 16th century to New England in the 19th, and from the Mississippi bottoms to cities like New Orleans or New York. The music of Negro religion is that plaintive rhythmic melody with its touching minor cadences, which, despite caricature and defilement, still remains the most original and beautiful expression of human life and longing yet born on American soil. Sprung from the African forests, where its counterpart can still be heard, it was adapted, changed, and intensified by the tragic soul life of the slave, until, 
under the stress of law and whip, it became the one true expression of a people's sorrow, despair, and hope. Finally, the frenzy or, quote, shouting, end quote, when the spirit of the Lord passed by and, seizing the devotee, made him mad with supernatural joy, was the last essential of Negro religion and the one more devoutly believed in than that all than all the rest. Excuse me. It varied in expression from the silent rapt countenance of the low murmur and moan to the mad abandon of physical fervor, the stamping, shrieking, and shouting, the rushing to and fro and wild waving of arms, the weeping and laughing, the vision and the trance. All this is nothing new in the world, but old is religion, as Delphi and Endor. And so firm a hold did it have on the Negro that many generations firmly believed that without this visible manifestation of God, there could be no true communion with the invisible. These were the characteristics of Negro religious life as developed up to the time of emancipation. Since under the peculiar circumstances of the black man's environment, they were the one expression of his higher life, they are of deep interest to the student of his development, both socially and psychologically. Numerous are the attractive lines of inquiry that here group themselves. What did slavery mean to the African savage? What was his attitude toward the world and life? What seemed to him good and evil, God and devil? Whither went his longings and strivings? And wherefore were his heart burnings and disappointments? Answers to such questions can come only from a study of Negro religion as a development, though its gradual changes from the heathenism of the Gold Coast to the Institutional Negro Church of Chicago. Through, excuse me, through its gradual changes from the heathenism of the Gold Coast to the Institutional Negro Church of Chicago. And we, uh, just a moment to reflect, we spoke about the relationship that black women specifically had with religion and how it influenced their politics in the book Sister Citizen by Melissa V. Harris Perry, which we read before reading this book. And I do think that part of understanding uh, American culture is understanding black culture within America. And one of the key components of black culture in America is religion. And whether or not you are a religious person, whether or not you're a spiritual person or whatever belief you may have, there's no separating the fact that because black people were, because Africans were brought over here and put in enslavement and had their culture wiped away, their religion, their spirituality, their philosophical beliefs, uh, their, their language, all of these things were wiped away from them. And then they were forced to adopt these the colonists and then eventually the Americans belief system and religion was used. Christianity was used as a way to continue to keep them subjugated and marginalized within slavery by this doctrine that told them that there was scriptures that supported slavery and scriptures that supported them being enslaved and that uh, the concept, you know, even du, du Bois used the uh, word savage. Even that that word, I believe, is uh, is used in the wrong in the wrong way. The everybody, every person who was a slave who was brought over here was not a, a quote unquote savage. 
uh, that would might have been the belief of the Europeans who brought them over here because they had a different culture and a different type of civilization, but they were not savage or or uncivilized. And I think they and, and one of the things they did is they used their religious beliefs to try to make people be more European like and with the belief that that would, I guess, cancel out the concepts of savagery that they uh, believed existed within black people. But one of the things that end up happening in the process of them using religion as a tool to keep them enslaved is that black people begin to form their own ideology around this religion, their own philosophy, their own belief system around this religion. And you would have people like Nat Turner who would lead slave revolts with the belief that uh, God was telling him and leading him to lead these slave revolts. You would have uh, black songs that they would sing that they, uh, that the white people thought were about religious and, and religion and, and God and uh, Christianity that were actually uh, metaphors or analogies or double entendres for ways of escaping or plans to escape. And, and so those, you know, Negro spirituals became intertwined with, uh, with black culture and became intertwined with uh, black music. And so, and then even as, as he pointed out here, the preacher has always had a very distinct spot in black culture, in the black community. And it, it started out with that where they, the enslaved people would be appointed somebody to be the preacher or a black person to preach who sort of echoed the same sentiments of the master. And again, as time went on, you would have Nat Turners that would emerge. You would have all these different people who would emerge and would, who would reinterpret these uh, these scriptures to have a co direct connection with them as enslaved people, as African people, and as uh, black people in America. Moreover, the religious growth of millions of men, even though they be slaves, cannot be without potent influence upon their contemporaries. The Methodists and Baptists of America owe much of their condition to the silent but potent influence of their millions of Negro converts. Especially is this noticeable in the South, where theology and religious philosophy are on this account a long way behind the North, and where the religion of the poor whites is a plain copy of Negro thought and methods. The mass of, quote, gospel, end quote, hymns, which has swept through American churches and well nigh ruined our sense of song, consists largely of debased imitations of Negro melodies made by ears that caught the jingle, but not the music, the body, but not the soul of the Jubilee songs. It is thus clear that the study of Negro religion is not only a vital part of the history of the Negro in America, but no uninteresting part of American history. The Negro Church of today is the social center of Negro life in the United States and the most characteristic expression of African character. Take a typical church in a small Virginian town. It is the, quote, First Baptist, end quote, a roomy brick edifice seating 500 or more persons, tastefully finished in Georgia pine with a carpet, a small organ, and stained glass windows. Underneath is a large assembly room with benches. This building is the central clubhouse of a community of a thousand or more Negroes. Various organizations meet here, the church proper, the Sunday school, two or three insurance societies, women's societies, secret societies, and mass meetings of various kinds. Entertainments, 
suppers, and lectures are all held beside the five or six regular weekly religious services. Considerable sums of money are collected and expended here. Employment is found for the idle. Strangers are introduced. News is disseminated and charity distributed. At the same time, this social, intellectual, and economic center is a religious center of great power. Depravity, sin, redemption, heaven, hell, and damnation are preached twice a Sunday with much fervor, and revivals take place every year after the crops are laid by. And few indeed of the community have the hardlyhood to stand converge to withstand conversion. Excuse me, let me try that again. And few indeed of the community have the hardihood to withstand conversion. Back of this more formal religion, the church often stands as a real conserver of morals, a strengthener of family life, and the final authority on what is good and right. Thus one can see in the Negro church today, reproduced in microcosm, all that great world from which the Negro was cut off by color prejudice and social condition. In the great city churches, the same tendency is noticeable and in many respects emphasized. A great church like the Bethel of Philadelphia has over 1,100 members, an edifice seating 1,500 persons, and valued at $100,000, an annual budget of $5,000, and a government consisting of a pastor with several assisting local preachers, an executive and legislative board, financial boards, and tax collectors. General church meetings for making laws, subdivided groups led by class leaders, a company of militia, and 24 auxiliary societies. The activity of a church like this is immense and far-reaching, and the bishops who preside over these organizations throughout the land are among the most powerful Negro rulers in the world. Such churches are really governments of men, and consequently a little investigation reveals the curious fact that, in the South, at least, Practically every American Negro is a church member. Some, to be sure, are not regularly enrolled, and a few do not habitually attend services. But, practically, a prescribed people must have a social center, and that center for this people is the Negro church. The census of 1890 showed nearly 24,000 Negro churches in the country, with a total enrolled membership of over two and a half millions or 10 actual church members to every 28 persons, and in some southern states, one in every two persons. Besides this, there is the large number who, while not enrolled as members, attend and take part in many of the activities of the church. There is an organized Negro church for every 60 black families in the nation, and in some states for every 40 families, owning, on an average, $1,000 is worth of property, or nearly $26 million in all. Such, then, is the large development of the Negro church since emancipation. The question now is, what have been the successive steps of this social history and what are the present tendencies? First, we must realize that no such institution as the Negro church career itself without definite historical foundations. These foundations we can find if we remember that the social history of the Negro did not start in America. He was brought from, excuse me, he was brought from a definite social environment the polygamous clan life under the headship of the chief and the potent influence of the priest. His, relig his religion was nature worship with profound belief in invisible surrounding influences, good and bad, and his worship was through incantation and sacrifice. The first rude change in this life was the slave ship in the West Indian sugar fields. The plantation organization replaced the clan and tribe, 
and the white master replaced the chief with far greater and more despotic powers. Forced and long-continued toil became the rule of life. The old ties of blood relationship and kinship disappeared, and instead of the family appeared a new polygamy and palandry, which, in some cases, almost reached promiscuity. It was a terrific social revolution, and yet some traces were retained of the former group life, and the chief remaining institution was the priest or medicine man. He early appeared on the plantation and found his function as the healer of the sick, the interpreter of the unknown, the comforter of the sorrowing, the supernatural avenger of the wrong, and the one who rudely but picturesquely expressed the longing, disappointment, and resentment of a stolen and oppressed people. Thus, as bard, physician, judge, and priest, within the narrow limits allowed by the slave system, rose the Negro preacher, and under him the first Afro-American institution, the Negro Church. This church was not at first by any means Christian, nor definitely organized. Rather, it was an adaptation and mingling of heathen rites among the members of each plantation and roughly designated as voodooism. Association with the masters, missionary effort, and motives of expediency gave these rites an early veneer of Christianity, and after the lapse of many generations, the Negro church became Christian. Two characteristic things must be noticed in regard to this church. First, it became almost entirely Baptist and Methodist in faith. Secondly, as a social institution, it antedated by many decades the monogamic Negro home. From the very circumstances of its beginning, the church was confined to the plantation and consisted primarily of a series of disconnected units. Although, later on, some freedom of movement was allowed, Still, this geographical limitation was always important and was one cause of the spread of the decentralized and democratic Baptist faith among the slaves. At the same time, the visible rite of baptism appeals strongly to their mystic temperament. Today, the Baptist church is still largest in membership among Negroes and has a million and a half communicants. Next in popularity came the churches organized in connection with the white neighboring churches, chiefly Baptist and Methodist with a few Episcopalian and others. The Methodists still form the second greatest denomination with nearly a million members. The faith of these two leading denominations was more suited to the slave church from the prominence they gave to religious feeling and fervor. The Negro membership in other denominations has always been small and relatively unimportant, although the Episcopalians and Presbyterians are gaining among the more intelligent classes today and the Catholic Church is making headway in certain sections. After emancipation, and still earlier in the North, the Negro churches largely severed such affiliations as they had had with the white churches, either by choice or by compulsion. The Baptist churches became independent, but the Methodists were compelled early to unite for purposes of Episcopal government. This gave rise to the great African Methodist Church the greatest Negro organization in the world, to the Zion Church and the Colored Methodist, and to the Black conferences and churches in this and other denominations. So, I think, uh, hmm. from my experience, yeah, most Black people I know who go to church are go to a Methodist church or go to a Baptist church. I've only been to either a Methodist or a Baptist church in my life, except for when I went to a 
private school when I went to uh, Christian Life out here and Faith Academy out here, and then Texas Urban Christian Academy. And I don't think that those the churches that were related to those schools or tied to those schools were Methodist or Baptist. Uh, I've never met any black Catholics in my life. I've seen them on TV, seen them on documentaries and things like that, but I've never met them personally. Uh, I've a lot, there's a lot of, uh, Jehovah's witnesses that are black. I know that's not something that he's touching on right here, right now. Uh, and so those are just some of the thoughts as he's speaking about religion. I'm just thinking about my experiences with religion as he's talking about the, the, um, he's talking about the amalgamation of African culture and then essentially slave culture and how those things came together to create black culture. The second fact noted, namely, that the Negro church antedates the Negro home leads to an explanation of much that is paradoxical in this communistic institution and in the morals of its members. But especially it leads us to regard this institution as peculiarly the expression of the inner ethical life of a people in a sense seldom true elsewhere. Let us turn, then, from the outer physical development of the church to the more important inner ethical life of the people who compose it. The Negro has already been pointed out many times as a religious animal, a being of that deep emotional nature which turns instinctively toward the supernatural. Endowed with a rich tropical imagination and a keen, delicate appreciation of nature, the transplanted African lived in a world animate with gods and devils, elves and witches, full of strange influences, of good to be implored, of evil to be propitiated, propitiated. Slavery, then, was to him the dark triumph of evil over him. All the hateful powers of the underworld were striving against him, and a spirit of revolt and revenge filled his heart. He called up all the resources of heathenism to aid, exorcism and witchcraft, the mysterious obi, worship with its barbarous rites, spells, and blood sacrifice even, now and then, of human victims. Weird midnight orgies and mystic conjurations were invoked, the witch woman and the voodoo priest became the center of Negro group life and that vein of vague superstition which characterizes the unlettered Negro even today was deepened and strengthened. In spite, however, of such success as that of the fierce Maroons, the Danish Blacks and others, the spirit of revolt gradually died away under the untiring energy and superior strength of the slave masters. By the middle of the 18th century, the black slave has sunk with hushed murmurs to his place at the bottom of a new economic system and was unconsciously ripe for a new philosophy of life. Nothing suited his condition than better, nothing suited his condition then better than the doctrines of passive submission embodied in the newly learned Christianity. Slave masters early realized this and cheerfully aided religious propaganda within certain bounds. The long system of repression and degradation of the Negro tended to emphasize the elements in his character which made him a valuable chattel. Courtesy became humility. Moral strength degenerated into submission. And the exquisite, exquisite native appreciation of the beautiful became an infinite capacity for dumb suffering. The Negro, losing the joy of this world, eagerly seized upon the offered conceptions of the next. The avenging spirit of the Lord enjoining patience in this world under sorrow and tribulation until the great day when he should lead his dark children home, 
This became his comforting dream. His preacher repeated the prophecy and his bard sang, quote, Children, we shall all be free when the Lord shall appear, end quote. This deep religious fatalism, painted so beautifully in, quote, Uncle Tom, end quote, came soon to breed, as all fatalistic faiths will, the sensualist side by side with the martyr. Under the lax moral life of the plantation, where marriage was a farce, laziness a virtue, and property a theft, a religion of resignation and submission degenerated easily and less strenuous minds into a philosophy of indulgence and crime. Many of the worst characteristics of the Negro masses today had their seed in this period of the slave's ethical growth. Here it was that the home was ruined under the very shadow of the church, white and black. Here habits of shiftlessness took root and sullen hopelessness replaced hopeful strife. With the beginning of the abolition movement and the gradual growth of a class of free Negroes came a change. We often neglect the influence of the free man before the war because of the paucity of his numbers and the small weight he had in the history of the nation. But we must not forget that his chief influence was internal, was exerted on the black world, and that there he was the ethical and social leader. Huddled as he was in a few centers like Philadelphia, New York, and New Orleans, the masses of the free men sank into poverty and listlessness, but not all of them. The free Negro leader early arose and his chief characteristic was intense earnestness and deep feeling on the slavery question. Freedom became to him a real thing and not a dream. His religion became darker and more intense and into his ethics crept a note of revenge and to his songs, a day of reckoning close at hand. The quote, coming of the Lord, end quote, swept this side of death and came to be a thing to be hoped for in this day. Through fugitive slaves and irrepressible discussion, this desire for freedom seized the black millions still in bondage and became their one ideal of life. The black birds, the black bards caught new notes and sometimes even dared to sing, quote, Oh freedom, oh freedom, oh freedom over me. Before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. End quote. And we're going to end this episode of Rafa Reading Daily right there. We will return tomorrow to finish up this chapter. And I think what stands out to me the most from the last section that we read is how Du Bois points out that the Christian religion was used basically to, to pacify the slaves. Uh, and in that, in using it to pacify the slaves, it gave birth or it, it planted the seeds of some of the more negative traits that the, not only the enslaved people would have, but that the free black people would have in the future. The uh, hopelessness, the uh, even the concepts of nihilism, which we've spoken about, Cornell West highlighted in the book we read entitled Race Matters. And uh, that was a, a way I had never looked at it before. They had sort of essentially been told to give up, give up on hope here, give up on life here, give up on ever being free here and just hope for it in the afterlife. And in doing so, that made them become lethargic to this life here and have hopelessness in this life here and not want to, you know, you don't want to work. You don't want to be enslaved. You don't want to, you know, do anything. You're just, you know, ready for death to come. So that way you can 
uh, be free. Uh, and so I think, think that that was just a, a very interesting perspective that I had never encountered before. Okay, so we're going to end this episode of Rafa Reading Daily here. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember that we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll at you tomorrow.